0: together at First John. First John uh, in the fifth verse is where we'll begin. Do you know that there is a whole group of people, kind of this uh, not-so-secret society of people, who work to try to tell people that the world, the earth, is not round? In fact, they work hard to share the information that we've all been fooled by this great hoax considering that the globe is round. They would say, in fact, that the world is flat. They are known as the Flat Earth Society. And they are really people, these are real people who work really hard to go around educating, I use quotation marks here, to inform us that the world is in fact flat and that all the pictures we've ever seen from space are just a hoax. In fact, they would say that the hoax began during the Cold, World, Cold War when the uh, Soviet Union and America were racing for space, and they photoshopped, digitally made fake photos of around Earth in order to claim that they'd been to space in order to embezzle money. Let, let me give you a quote from one of their websites, dedicated to the unraveling the true mysteries of the universe and demonstrating that the Earth is flat. And that round-earth doctrine is little more than an elaborate hoax. Now, brothers and sisters, that is, as we would say, nuts. That's crazy. And if you meet someone who shares with you that they honestly believe that the world is flat and not round, and that all the evidence is made up, you would think to yourself that they have some mental challenges. That there is something wrong with them, that they are not stable in their understanding. We think about people who say the earth is flat and we say to ourselves, they're not right. They're missing the obvious. Now, let me suggest to you. That just as we would look at someone who declares the world to be flat and think that is crazy, the world would look at Christians who pronounce the idea that mankind is sinful and say, that's crazy. You guys are akin to a flat earth society when you teach us that we're sinful, that we're evil, that we're broken. That's not true. You Christians who declare that sin, this idea that somehow we're fallen and broken, is a real issue. You are akin to the flat earth society. And sadly, many of the world's philosophies and church pulpits would echo that philosophy. They would say that sin is not really the issue. That the issue is environment, education, politics. The issue is opportunity. The issue is that all men are really born good, they just make some mistakes along the way. That they would not say that sin is this rebellion against God. In fact, in modern day world, if you stand on any corner and you say, you are a sinner, you are wrong, you are evil by nature and God's wrath burns against you, you will be mocked and laughed at. You'll be labeled in the category as flat earth society. You'll be moved to the marginalized because to tell someone they are wrong or evil or broken is to go against the normals of this world that says, you are good, you are love, you are you, be yourself. Now, brothers and sisters... The ultimate issue is, is I'm talking to people who are gathered here and watching online that probably understand sin. You've probably already come to the biblical idea that we need some help, that we're broken. But unfortunately, this idea that sin is not a big deal has crept into the church. It creeps into our life. We make light of sin. We make little of sin. We think it's no big deal. And this philosophy is we're going to be okay. And usually this is because of two fallacies. The first fallacy is we have the wrong scorecard. You see, I don't think my sin's really bad because I put it next to yours. I'll let that sit for a moment. You see, when we... That was supposed to be a joke, by the way. You were supposed to go, we we right ours against yours. We're good. We, we, we have the wrong scorecard. You see, compared to the pedophile and rapist and terrorist and Nazi, I, I'm a good guy. Compared to my neighbor who's always drunk and left his wife and doesn't care about his kids, I I'm a great guy. That's a fictional neighbor by the way. My neighbors are great. That's a that's a, that's a that's a, I'm a good guy. I'm okay. You see here's the issue. When we view sin and we grade ourselves, we always round up We always give ourselves a better grade than what is reality. And the second fallacy when it comes to viewing sin is not only do we grade ourselves by the wrong scorecard, but we have a wrong view of God. We see God as a heavenly granddad who overlooks boo-boos, who hugs problems, and the Bible says God is love, so we declare God must accept me for who I am. And that is far from Scripture. For God does not accept us as who we are. God saves us where we are and changes us for eternity. You see, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we have a small view, a little view, a low view of sin is because we have the wrong scorecard and we have the wrong view of God. And that's exactly what John will take up in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-2, through chapter 2, verse 2. Turn in your Bibles there and let's see it together. And this morning, I want us to simply do this. I, I give you a title that's pretty long, but it's part of the Bible. In fact, I was texting my brother and my father. We text each other on Sunday mornings to pray for one another, often sharing the sermon titles. I I shared my sermon title and my brother said it was as confusing as a book he wrote in seminary. So I'm telling you that it's a long title on purpose, all right? But I told him I don't have hair gel, so be quiet. Here's the idea. Uh, The idea is simply this, discovering a biblical view of God, sin, and the Savior. We need to discover again, we need to see again, and this is what John will pick up, a biblical view of God, sin, and the Savior. In these next few verses, brothers and sisters, John is going to unfold for us the beauty of the gospel in some of the most beautiful language in all of the Bible. And some of the most deepest truths in all of Scripture. And I pray for you this morning that might be uh, coming into Christianity, looking at the cross, thinking about your sin, wondering about your eternity. I pray this morning you will see the beauty of the gospel. You will hear the good news of Jesus so that you too can be forgiven of your sins. And maybe you're here this morning and say, I'm a believer. I know I've been forgiven. I know sin is serious. Then I pray you'll be encouraged to know that Jesus has done it. He will always do it. You will always be right in God's eyes because of Jesus you will be in courage let's look together at first john chapter one starting in verse five you heard micah read part of this but i want to read it again just so it settles into our minds this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all of our sin. Verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, If we say we have not sin. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now look at chapter 2. Listen to John's loving words. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate that is with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, Help us see how serious sin is. How beautifully wonderful you are. Remind us why we needed Jesus. Tell us again what Jesus did to save us. Tell us how Jesus holds us and keeps us. God, search us and know us. I pray this morning for the one who's, who's tuned in online, that church is new to them and understanding the gospel is new to them. I pray, Lord, that they would hear clearly what it means to be forgiven of their sins. Lord, I pray for the one in the room that has tied their salvation to some past event with no evidence of the Spirit working in their life. I pray they would hear the Gospel clearly today. Lord, I pray that that the believers in the room would be reminded that we sit in the presence of God and we will be carried into the eternal kingdom of God because of Jesus. That our hope is in Jesus. Our satisfaction is in Jesus. Our self-esteem is in Jesus. Lord God, teach us again today what it means. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Let me just remind you by way of background, the Apostle John is, we believe, probably the last living of the original apostles when he's writing these letters. He writes for us five New Testament works, the Gospel of John, We have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these letters to the church, and then the book of Revelation where God gives him the revelation of the future kingdom. So we we talked last week about how John will see in the gospel the work of Christ, the past work of Christ, how he walked the earth, he died, he was buried, he rose from the grave. And and in Revelation we see the future work of Christ where he'll return and and make all things new and redeem us. And then then right here in the middle we have these letters that are for us, the here, the now, the present, the church age, that we who are stuck between what Jesus has done at Calvary and what Jesus will do in eternity we're, we're in this middle here, and so he writes to the church to strengthen the church, and particularly 1 John is written because some false teachers have come into the church, because we're now on the second and third generation of Christians that have that are in the new church, the churches that have been planted by the apostles, by, by James and John, and and Peter and, and Paul and, and they've been built up by Timothy and, and we find them there and Barnabas and Mark and so we, we know that the church is growing but now they're in their second and third generation and, and the apostles are dying and now there's struggle in the church and there's, there's false teaching that's come into the church and, and the main reason why John picks up his pen is because he loves the church. He's this pastor that has cared for them and planted them and looked over them. And now, in his old age, he writes to them saying, don't listen to this false teaching. Don't listen to that. And we saw in the very first four verses of 1 John chapter 1 about how John reminds them that I was there. I saw Jesus. I know it's true. I know he's God. I know he came to save us. I know he was really resurrected from the tomb. Don't fall in this trap. And so he's dealing with the teaching of the false teachers. And in this particular section, he will deal with the false teachers by giving three of their arguments. You will see there in your scripture that he will say, if we say, he'll do that three times. And what he's doing is he's saying, I've heard their teaching. I've listened to the false teachers. I've heard what you've been taught. I'm going to repeat it back to you, and then I'm going to tear it apart with the truth of the gospel." Then I'm going to let you know what God's really about. And so so in this text, he's dealing with it. And the main issue he will take up in these verses is simply this. If you don't have a right view of God, you won't have a right view of man. And if you don't have a right view of man, you'll have no idea of why Jesus is important. And so he's ultimately saying we must get God right so that we can understand our predicament, our dilemma in sin. And then we will see how beautiful Jesus is. Is And so he'll make three claims in this text as we get this biblical view. So claim number one, truth number one, we must have a biblical view of God. We must see God as who he is self-revealed to us in the scripture. We do not get to make up God on our own. We do not get to conjure God into what we want him to be. If the God you worship is not the God of the Bible, you found no God at all. There's no God there. And so he reminds us we must see God clearly. And in fact, if we are going to understand sin, if we're going to understand who we are, we must see God the Father. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, John will set the stage for us. He will say, let me remind you that God is light. Before John will take apart the false teaching about sin and how sin's not a big deal or it's just a mistake, how, how people don't really have a sin problem, before he will dismantle those false teachings, he will set before us God. Why? Because if we're going to have any definition of evil, we must have a standard of good. If we're going to understand lawlessness, we must have law. You cannot define speeding without a speed limit. You cannot define evil without a standard for good. The only reason reason why we know something is evil because there is in our nature an innate understanding that we are made in the image of something good and therefore evil in the world means that there must be a standard and so what John does is he makes this logical argument he says before you go around saying sin's not a big deal remember who God is God is light notice the word that he will use there God is light. He will make the argument by giving the positive and the negative. He will define God by telling you what God is not. He is light and therefore there is no darkness in Him. Now if you survey the Bible, you'll find that God is described in many metaphors and analogies. It's a treasure trove of trying to understand God. Man in their pen trying to tell us who God is through the power of the Spirit. But one of the analogies that we see throughout the Bible is that God is light. And as you survey the Bible, you'll understand that oftentimes it's used in many different ways. One of the ways we understand God is light is that He is radiant and glorious and holy and that staring at Him will change us for the good or the worst. We will be condemned in the judgment of the light or we'll be transformed by it through faith. But we understand that, that He is radiant and holy. Another idea of light in Scripture referring to God is that He is revealing to us. He is self-revealing. Now think about it for just a moment. Now, let's just zero in on this. You would not know God, lest He want you to know Him. We would not understand Him if He did not reveal Himself to us if He did not burst forth in creation, if He did not speak from the clouds or cause the fire cloud to lead the people, if He did not speak through the prophets and give us Scripture, if He did not reveal Himself in the incarnate Son, the triune God, if He did not burst forth in the manger and stand on Calvary, we would not know Him. So when we declare God is light, we are declaring, one, that He is holy, and two, that He reveals Himself. He is revealing. Another place we find light taught in Scripture is that He guides Light teaches us the truth, it points us in the right direction, it leads us in the path of righteousness, it orders our steps, it will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This is what the Lord does. But here I want you to notice something. Look with me, let's read the verse again. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness. Now what John is doing is he's using light as the analogy of a moral or ethical conversation. He's not talking about God as holy and radiant, though that's part of it. He's not talking about God as self-revealing, though that's part of it. He's not talking about God as guiding us, though that's part of it. His main reason for using the metaphor of light in this text is to tell us that God is morally without corruption. That he is perfect and pure and that there is nothing evil in him. There's no shadow of turning. There's no spots. There's no dilemmas. There's no flaws. There's no mistakes. There's no sin. He never changes his mind. He never does evil. He never flies off the handle. He never cusses in traffic. He never does any of those things. He doesn't backtalk his mom if he had one. He does not uh, spill his milk and yell This is not the God that we would understand in our own nature. This is a God that's revealed himself to us and saying to us, I am without corruption. Now think of the contrast. There is no darkness in him. What we should read there is simply this. There is no darkness in him, but we should also see that John is teaching us there is no darkness allowed in him allowed in His presence, allowed around Him. He is holy and radiant and pure and perfect and without blemish and there will be no dark spots in His presence. There will be no evil allowed into His kingdom. No one who is not light will be let into the kingdom. If you have blemish, if you have dark spot, you cannot be around Him. And therein lies the struggle. And therein lies the problem. And, and notice before you say, well, well, Pastor, God is love, God cares, God is good. No, you're, you're being hard on sin. That's not. We're just a, a product of a fallen world, but we're doing our best. Notice the sentence again. This is the message we have heard from him, him being Jesus, described in verses 1 through 4. So John says, before you attack me on my teaching, remember this, I got this straight from the lips of Jesus. I got the message from him. This message of the gospel, that God is good and that we are sinners and that there's a separation, a chasm between us and there's no darkness allowed in the presence of God, that we are fallen and without hope and there's nothing we can do in ourselves to save or wash away the sin. There's nothing we can do to make the shadow and the blemishes turn from our own. That message is not one that John made up on his own. It's not one that we just throw out there being mean and ugly. It's one that Jesus himself delivered Jesus said this is my father he is light this is the message you are sin you are separated you are fallen you know what this means this means this and let me lean in on you who call yourselves believers as as I trust that you are let me lean in on you this means you don't get to negotiate the standard of sin with God you you don't get to go before God and, and somehow change his mind on what light is and what darkness is you don't get to go before a holy God and say, well, God, I, I know you called this sin, but, but let me talk to you about it a little bit. Let, let me negotiate with you. I, I think about my children who are real prone when they hear a command from me or my mom, to, or me or my wife, excuse me, to come back with, but, but daddy, but, but, but mama, just listen to me. Just listen, just listen to me. Just listen to Daddy, just, just, just listen to me. Like that negotiation is going to change the process. We don't negotiate with God over sin. Why? Because we're blemished. And He is not. He is the standard of light. He is good. Oh, friend, as we walk through these next few verses, let us understand that we are going to be challenged by our own fallen nature to think we're not as bad as we are. But let us remember that anything that is not light is sin. That's not of God is sinful, is broken, is blemished. God is Light. Any discussion of sin must start with holy God. Truth number two, we must not only see God, a biblical view of God, but we must have a biblical view of sin. Now that he's told us about God's holiness, he will now dismantle the false teacher's view of sin, their way of defining sin. This is the meat of John's sermon here in this passage. He will tell us this. He will use these statements. If you look in verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10, he will say, if we say... He's giving us an argument that he's hearing among the people. If we say, he's telling us that this is what the false teachers are saying. And it has to do with sin. He said, if we say, look with me at verse 6 and 7. Here's the first clause, this first false statement. If we say we have fellowship with him, meaning God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. Now what he will do is in these three clauses, he will tell us three, uh, uh, three dynamic or powerful ways in which sin tears us up, in which it breaks us, in which it destroys our work and walk with God. So in this first one, he would simply tell us this, sin destroys fellowship with God. We need a serious view of sin because we need to understand that sin destroys our fellowship with God. Notice the words that he uses in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God, if we confess with our mouth, oh yeah, I'm right with God. God and I are friends. God loves me. God's with me. I'm for God and God is for me. If we say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the team. I'm following the Lord. If we say that, but notice the rest of verse 6. But walk in darkness. We're a liar. Now, notice what John is doing. John is attacking those who come into the church to say, We're right with God, listen to us. But unfortunately, their verbiage and their actions don't add up, they're not matching. They are walking hypocrisies, if you will. They are opposite of what it's called to be. They are essentially saying one can be right with God and not have their behavior affected. They are essentially teaching that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, He will save you and redeem you and forgive you, but He cares nothing about how you act. Go back and do whatever you want to do. They are essentially saying that salvation and reckoning with sin will not change your behavior. And John, without missing a beat, without blinking an eye, looks them in the face, or at least with a pen, and says, you're a liar. That's not true. That's not biblical. That's not found in Scripture. Brothers or sisters, you won't find anywhere in Scripture where you're told, come to Jesus and go live the way you want to. That's not a a pattern of becoming a disciple. That's not a pattern of life change. That's not a truth from the text of the Bible. And so ultimately what they are doing is they are declaring one thing with their mouth and they're doing another with their actions. And John says, if you say you have no sin, if you say you know Christ, if you say you're fellowshipping with God, but your life looks no different, you're a liar. We should let this sink for a moment. We should should feel the weight of this because this is not a new teaching that John is giving. He's not being a legalist. He's not saying, well, you better be more religious or you better try harder. He's simply saying, I heard this message from Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll take up your cross and follow me. You'll come after me. In fact, multiple times in the Gospels when Jesus draws a crowd, he warns them. This path won't be easy. Many of you will desert me. It's going to be hard. What if I don't give you bread every time we have a big gathering? What if I don't do a miracle in front of your eyes? What if I'm led to a lonely hill and die on a cross? What if it leads to your death? Peter, what if you're led out to die? What if this happens to you? Will you still follow me? Because the call of the gospel is to reckon with our sin and change who we are works from us. I I remember, and I've shared this with you many times, the old Bible school song, he's still working on me, right? It took him a a week to make the moon and the stars, right? But he's still working on me. And the idea from the song as we teach children is simply this, that when Christ invades us and Ezekiel 36 tells us that he replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh that beats for him, then from the inside out, he's changing us and transforming us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us lean in for just a moment, because Jesus would even teach this in Luke chapter 6. Jesus would say, you judge a tree by the fruit it bears. You walk through the orchard and you see apples and you go, apple tree. You walk through the orchard and you see oranges and you say, orange tree. And here's the problem. In the church, we're afraid of that. We're scared of that. And the reason why we're scared of that is because we don't want to swing the pendulum into legalism and say, well, you've got to mark this box and this box and this box and this box. But brothers and sisters, it's not legalism to look at someone and say, if you really love Jesus, you'll be different. If you really love Jesus, you'll obey him. So maybe, just maybe, your spouse, your child, your prodigal neighbor is not some Christian that's wandering his own way. Maybe, just maybe, they're not a Christian at all. Maybe, just maybe, we should stop making excuses for people so it makes us feel better at funerals and declare them as lost and share them the gospel. Maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons why you wallow in the same sin over and over and over and over is because you've not found forgiveness or freedom in Christ. You're not a believer. You're just a religious person. And you don't know nothing about the blood of Jesus Christ that cancels the debt of sin. That frees the captive. You see, brothers and sisters, John is not telling us perfection is necessary. He will clear that up in just a few moments. But he is telling us this. If you walk, and the word walk here is progressive. If you progressively go towards the darkness, you don't know Jesus. If you progressively move away from the teaching of our Lord, you're a liar. So he reckons with sin. He wrestles with sin with it. He puts it in front of us and he says, this is not the way it should be. And in fact, in verse seven, he will move from this phony lifestyle to a true lifestyle from phony speech to a real life. Look at verse seven. Here's what it should look like. Here's what it should look like. He says in verse seven, but if we walk in the light, if we're progressively going towards the transforming rays of God, We're moving towards a God who transforms us by His glorious, radiant, moral truth. We're moving towards this God. We're moving in the direction of a loving God who is perfect and pure. Look what he says. But if we walk in the light, He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all our sins. John says, here's the difference. If you confess it, but walk in darkness, you're still in your sin. But if you're walking in light, confessing your sin, and moving in the direction of the Lord, then we know the blood of Christ has cleansed you. We see the evidence of the washing. We know it. When you give a baby a bath, you remove the dirty diaper and the smelly clothes, and you hold them at arm's length because a newborn baby who's filled up a diaper smells like the third ring of hell. And you hold them out at a distance. But after you bathe them and powder them and lotion them and put the salve on them and wrap them in the clothing, you bring them in clothes and you can smell and feel and know that they are changed. This is the picture. The picture is, is that when you come to the light, When you plunge underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, you are washed clean. Spots are no more. And the transforming rays of God who is light changes you. You are different. Notice that last part of verse 7. Cleanses us of all our sins. Oh, brother or sister, sit on that for a moment. Every single sin. Every sin you've ever done, doing, will do, the blood of Jesus has has washed it. Every sin, removed every stain, cleared every spot, broke every chain of darkness, every sin. The blood of Jesus washes every sin. And the glorious truth of the blood of Jesus is it will never lose its power. It will never stop. It will always be cleansing for us. It will always hold us. It will always keep us. It will always guard us in the light. Why? Because it's Jesus' blood. Not my works, not my effort, not my false confessions, but it's Jesus' work. It's Jesus' blood. It's the Son of God's glorious, glorious dripping blood from the cross that we pray beneath, and He cleanses all our sins. So you may be here this morning wallowing in sin, broken in sin, dark full of sin, and let me say to you, there is nothing that will cleanse it except the blood of Jesus, and here's the promise of Jesus, every, every, every sin will be washed away. Every sin. Washed away. That's what a real person reckoning with sin looks like. We don't just say it and get on with our life. We fall underneath Jesus, and it changes us. Second truth about sin. we got a long ways to go, by the way. Sin denies the truth of God. Sin denies the truth of God. If we don't reckon with sin correctly, we will deny the truth of God. Look with me. Verse 8 and 9, he gives us another clause statement here. He says this in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The second false claim he will make is He will look. people will say, well, well I don't have sin. Yes, I, I believe we need to be uh, forgiven and all that kind of stuff, but, but I don't have any sin. I'm not doing anything wrong. Now, we may not be so bold to say that in the church. We, we would not stand up and say we're perfect, we're sinless. But we might say things like, well, I just made a mistake or it wasn't really that big a deal. Or you know what, it, it, they just got dealt a bad hand, it's their environment, it's how they were brought up, it's, it's just in their name. You know, psychology tells us if they'd had more hugs as a kid, they would have turned out better. It's, it's not their fault, we, we can mitigate this. Can I tell you what a mistake is? A mistake is when you forget to carry the one and you multiply wrong. A mistake is when you go to Sam's and you buy all kind of groceries, but you forget to get the milk out of the car and it burns up overnight right in the middle of your car. That's, that's a mistake. That's a, that's a fallen nature mistake. That's, a, that's an issue. A mistake is when you do two plus two and get five. That's a mistake. But sin, sin is open rebellion against God who is light. Brothers and sisters, sin is not a mistake. It's rebellion. It's lawlessness. It's running from a holy God. In fact, John will reckon with sin in two ways. He will say, first, sin is ultimately a disbelief of Jesus as the Savior. And secondly, he will say it's ultimately a disbelief of Jesus' commandments. So sin is to deny that we need Jesus, and sin is to deny that we should follow after what Jesus has said. And so he will, he will say to us that sin is a rebellion. It's a rebellion against God's Savior, and it's a rebellion against God's commandments. Sin is not a mistake. It's not out of character. I'm always intrigued by some celebrity or, or political person who gets caught in some sort of sin, and the first thing they usually say is, well, this was out of character for me. I, I, this was out of character. And I always just want to push back and go, no, it wasn't. It's sin. That's the character of sinners. Sinners. Sinners sin, we are fallen. And to deny that, to say we have no sin, look what he says. It is to say that God is that the Bible is not true, that God's not true. Look at verse seven. But if we walk in the light, excuse me, verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we're delusional. If you think you are without sin, you are delusional. You are a flat earth society person. You have lost your mind. You're off your rocker. It's not true. You are delusional. Look what he says. You deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. The truth is not in you. If you don't believe you have sin, the truth is not in you. If you make excuses, then you've missed the truth of God. George Morrison, the Scottish preacher, would write it this way. He would say, to wrap yourself in excuses is to be naked before the great white throne. If you, if you think you're going to make excuses, you're going to stand before God with, with nothing. You're going to be broken before the Lord. C.H. Spurgeon would call it such foolishness that he would write this. He would say these words, he who cannot find water in the sea is no more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. If you can't see you're a sinner, then you can't see the oceans full of water. That's the idea here, is that, that you are deluded, you've lost it. And so sin is so serious that we should make sure we're constantly understanding that it is something that we deal with. But here's the beauty. Look at verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. Look at verse 9. But if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that we see we have sin. And instead of making excuses and running and hiding and trying to act like we don't have sin, the beauty of the gospel is we confess it to the moral God, the light. We bring it into the light, as John would tell us in his gospel. And that's where we find forgiveness. We, we find in the Lord that he will change us. Look again at the verse. That he will cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. He will forgive us and cleanse us. He'll remove the debt and he'll wash away the stain. This is the beauty of confessing sin. It is to say, Lord, I'm full of it. I have it. It's all over me. I can't break it. I'm bringing it by faith to you and you, by your righteousness, your goodness, your love, you will cancel the debt. You will wash me clean. You will do this. Here's the beauty of the gospel. To admit fault is to find mercy. The beauty of the gospel is when we admit we are sinners, we find forgiveness. Now, that's the complete opposite of the world's philosophy. Don't show weakness. Don't let them know you're messed up. It's not your fault. You, you didn't do this. But, but the paradox of the gospel is the one who's made free is the one who's admitted he was in chains. And the one who's in chains is the one who will not admit that they're in there, that they need to be freed. That's the, the paradox of the gospel. The gospel is, no, you're chained and you'll be set free. No, you need mercy. It'll be given to you. This is the beauty. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen: the writer would give us a piece of wisdom here. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's the gospel. There's the good news. Third truth about sin, quickly, sin defames the character of God. If we don't take sin seriously, we will destroy fellowship with God. If we don't take sin seriously, uh, we will deny the truth of God. But if we don't take sin seriously, ultimately, this is where John is building. We will defame, we will mock, we will tear down, we will attack the character of God. We will go against the character of God. Look at verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10. He will sum it up this way. If we say we have not sinned, here's how clear he gets. We make him, God, or Jesus, the one who brought us the message about God, A liar. And His word is not in us. Now, brothers and sisters, we must reckon with this very clearly. When we make light of sin, we are saying to God that all of the Bible is not necessary and that Jesus' sacrifice was not needed. When we make light of sin, when we make little of sin, we are saying to Jesus, we don't believe that Calvary was necessary. We don't believe that the blood was needed. We don't believe the story of the gospel. We don't believe the summation of all of Scripture that all have sin and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, when we make light of sin, we are looking at God and saying, God, this whole story from Genesis to Revelation is a lie. And you're a liar. Now, brothers and sisters, I would argue that that's not how we usually view sin in our day-to-day life. I would argue that we see it as a mistake, as fallen... We see it as something we need forgiveness for, but we don't take it serious enough to say, God, when we sin, we're declaring you're a liar. And that's not what John would tell us. John would say, if you go on sinning, if you go on walking away from God, you're ultimately telling God everything you've told us about the story of redemption is not true. Brothers and sisters, when we make light of sin, we make God to be a liar, and that is not true. That is far from true. For he is a good God who's told us the truth. And in his truth, not only did he tell it to us, but he sent his son to change our lives. This is the truth that God has showed us mercy. And so that leads us to a third and final point, And that's simply this. We must have a biblical view of the Savior. I want you to see the last two verses of our text this morning. And I don't want you to miss them because the hero of the story is Jesus. You can tell that when we think about salvation, you realize the only thing we bring to the equation is the problem. When we think about salvation, the only thing we've brought to it is the sin that covers our bodies, the blemishes of the darkness of our immorality, our mortal excuse me, our immoral lives. Well, the only thing we've brought to it is death. That's the only thing we bring to the equation. And so we need something outside of us to move. We need the God of light to do something about the darkness that we're wallowing in. And look at verses chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And again, th- these two verses could be a whole sermon series in themselves. Look at what he says My little children, I love it. John has now moved from attacking the false teachers to looking to the church. The gray-haired apostle who's walked the earth with Jesus now with a loving and tender heart does not scold the church because they're, they're being turned by these false teachers. He doesn't fuss at them. He gathers them up because he loves them. And he says, my little children, my family, my sheep, my flock, I, I love you and I want you to hear the truth. And notice what he says. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if one does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, here's what John is doing John has just delivered to us this whole idea that everybody's a sinner and we're all messed up. And so, if we're not careful, we can leave the church going, Well, I'm a sinner. I, I'm, you know, I can't help it. I just am who I am. You know me. I'm just going to do that thing I do. I'm falling. I, I'll confess it. I'll get over it. And if we're not careful, we can view the forgiveness of God as license to sin. And Paul would remind us of this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where he would say, What shall we say then to this should we continue sinning? May it never be. And so John picks up this conversation and he says, Just because you know you're a sinner doesn't mean you should sin. And so he says, My little children, I'm explaining all this to you so you won't sin. So you won't fall in the trap of sin. And then he goes a step further and he says, but. Now i got to tell you, there is no stronger English word in all of the Bible than but. Because it changes everything. If I call you today and say, your spouse has been in a car wreck, but they're okay. It changes everything. If I call you today and say, I don't have any plans for lunch, but I'm coming to your house. It changes everything in my life. It changes it, right? That, That flips the conversation. And so what does he say? Look at verse 1 and 2. But, but, brothers and sisters, what are we to do with this sin? Look at what he says. He says these words, but if any of us does sin, we do, we have it, it's on us. We have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is our propitiation for our sin. Now he uses two words there, advocate and propitiation. So let us view them quickly this way. When we come to Jesus, here is the gospel. These two verses are the gospel. Here's the gospel story. When we come to faith in Jesus, when we confess our sins and realize that we need saving, we come to Jesus. And Jesus does two things in order to save us, John teaches us, two to works that he does. One, he advocates. The word advocate is a legal term. It means to stand up for someone in need. It means to declare someone for help. So get the picture. We're in the courtroom of God, we're standing before the Father, and all we have is all this sin that's made us dark. And God says, I'm holy, I'm pure, I'm light, you're not getting in here. I do not let darkness in my kingdom. And then, John says, but, right before God slams his hammer of judgment, the advocate speaks for us. Jesus declares for us. Jesus steps in for us. Jesus speaks for us. And notice what the text says in verse 1 by his righteousness now the glorious truth of the argument for you to meet and get into heaven is not i'm here so that i can tell you how good corey is jesus is there to tell me how good he is for me he's advocating on my behalf now now listen what is he advocating well that leads us to the second word look at verse two and we'll be done he's advocating that he is the propitiation us. The word propitiation has to do with the idea of appeasing the wrath of God. You should think of the word satisfying. You see, God is holy. God is light. Verse 5, God is good. He is moral. Darkness cannot stand in him, and therefore darkness must be punished by him. Lawlessness must be held accountable. We want a God who holds lawlessness accountable. We want justice. We want righteousness. The problem is we fall on the wrong side of that in our sin. And so we need someone to take the punishment for us. And so the word propitiation literally means Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for us. And the wrath of God is not arbitrary. It's not flying off the handle. It is set against sin. It is measured. All sin will be punished. And so Jesus steps in for us through his death, burial, and resurrection by his Righteousness. First Peter would write it this way: 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Understanding propitiation, Danny Aiken writes this. Let me read it to you so to help you understand the definition. Jesus Christ, by his blood, sacrificed on the cross, satisfied God's holiness, and turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners, poured out on Jesus. He goes on to write these words. The experience that should have been experienced by sinners, that's us, was experienced by Jesus. The hell that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. He stood in our place. And here's why it's so good. Listen, don't miss this. Don't miss it. With Jesus as your advocate and with Jesus as your propitiation, meaning Jesus stands and argues for you, but he argues his righteousness on your behalf, brothers and sisters. The argument is a lock. The verdict is settled. Forgiveness is granted. Because Jesus is the advocate. Because Jesus is the sacrifice. Because Jesus stood in our place. Then I can declare, as the song will say, my hope is built on Jesus. My hope is on Him and nothing else. It's on Him and Him alone. He has done this. So if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sin, we have Jesus. And here's what it means. Listen now, here's what it means. When you stand before God in the courtroom of eternity, with all your sin, and all your spots, and all your brokenness, Jesus will speak for you. And one author described it this way. Jesus will look at God the Father and turn His face from you back to Calvary. And he would say, Father, remember the cross? Remember my blood? Remember when I yelled, Father, forgive them? I was thinking of this one. And the advocate who satisfies the wrath of God wins us the verdict of forgiveness. And now the power of sin is canceled and the debt is removed. And according to John, when we've experienced that, we'll walk different. We'll talk different. We'll behave differently. Would you bow your heads with me? One of the clearest places to read the gospel is in Psalm 32. I just want to read it to you with your heads bowed. Here is the story of the gospel. Here's what Jesus has done for us. Here's what you have to do with your sin. Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Your heads are bowed and your eyes closed. Listen to me now if you want to hear. If you want to hear God forgive you of your sins, then you must confess I am a sinner. If you want to be freed from your chains, you must declare you're in chains. If you want to be washed from your spots, you must declare you are dirty. If we confess, the Lord will cleanse us. And wash us and save us. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to come to Jesus. You realize now after listening to this story that your religious activity is not the same as being saved. You've not come to Jesus. You've not confessed your sin. You've not been washed by the blood of Christ. Then today's the day, brother, sister. Declare it. Confess it. Say it to the Lord. You need to be saved. God, forgive me of my sins. Wash me in your blood. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer. You know the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're wallowing in sin. You're turning into darkness and you know it's wrong. You feel the weight of His hand on your shoulders. Then confess it. Let Him build you up. Let Him strengthen you. Maybe you're here this morning and and sickness and pandemic and death and, and family issues have caused you to worry about eternity. You feel overwhelmed by this world. Let me remind you. You have an advocate that will not fail. Brother, sister, I pray this morning you will make you will not make light of your sin and you will see the glorious truth of Jesus our Savior. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. I'll be here at the front pew. If you want to pray with me, I'll be happy to put my mask on and pray with you. If you want to come to this altar and pray, then I invite you to do that. If you want to catch me after the service. If you're watching online and, and you want more help than And you are welcome to reach out to us. You're welcome to contact us. I want to help you. Father, lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? You come if the Lord leads.